Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It is noon uh, on November the 5th in California. Uh, the American election still hasn't been decided. But I want to take your minds off this election for a few minutes because it's got really boring, I think. I want to talk about genius and creativity. We've talked quite a lot about this on the show, actually. We had Craig Wright, the Yale University musicologist, talking about genius, how to define it. And we also had my old friend, Poe Bronson, uh, talking about why we're not defined by our genes. I assume the word genius came originally from the word genes. So we're stuck still with the same question about who and why do we become creative? Why and how are geniuses made? Uh, and this is particularly, I think, relevant in the, in the musical sphere where there are many geniuses, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, and so on. It's no coincidence that Craig Wright himself was a musicologist or is a musicologist. Uh, my guest on the show today, Dmitry Sitkovsky, uh, is the child of geniuses. He's also, I think, a musical genius in his own right. His mother is Bella uh, Davidovich, who's a very, very distinguished pianist. His father, Julian Stikovsky, who unfortunately died when he was pretty young, was one of the leading uh, Russian violinists, not only of his age, but perhaps of the 20th century. Uh, and of course, Dmitri grew up with these two geniuses, and he himself has become a very distinguished violinist, composer, and arranger. Uh, Dimitri, uh, uh, Dimitri, uh, you, you, uh, you have spoken quite a lot, I think, about how you inherited your skills. Where do you stand on this whole genius, genealogy, genes debate? Well, uh, of course, genes help very much. And in my case, uh, you know, I'm a fourth generation of professional musicians in my family because my maternal great-grandfather became uh, a professional musician in 1889. I have a, sp a special uh, gift which was given to him by his colleagues who was a, a classmate of Sergei Rachmaninoff. And at that point, they, they were in Baku, uh, which now Azerbaijan at that time it was uh, Soviet Union. And so he gave it to him in 1929 to commemorate 40 years of being a professional musician. So I know exactly where my dynasty takes place from. Uh, so it's since 1889. So I'm a fourth generation of professional musician and my uh, rather successful opera singer daughter, Julia Sitkovetsky, is the fifth so i mean it's uh, genes do play mm, a certain role but not always not always as we know uh you know mozart's kids were not, not geniuses 
there are many great, uh, you know, I knew, I grew up in the Central Music School where my dynasty certainly was not the only one. Uh, there were children of Stislav Rostropovich, a uh, grandkid of Dmitry Shostakovich, and David Oistrich's uh, grandkid, and the, the sons of Leonid Kogan, and so forth. There were a number of, of, of dynasties, but hardly anybody became anything like an equal to their parents, because it is very difficult. Uh, you, you have a tremendous advantage of growing up in a family where music is all around you. I mean, I was uh, on stage before I was born. <laughs> There's a funny story. My mother, which is on this picture with my daughter, Julia, my mother was uh, pregnant with me. And in a certain point in the Beethoven Piano Concerto, I got so excited in her womb that she was sort of pushed away from the piano because that play appealed to, the, to me still in her womb. So, you know, it's very good if you uh, play great music. Uh, Did you? To... Uh, my sense, uh, Dimitri, is that you're yeah. a little ambivalent about this notion of inheriting talent and, um, and genius. And your life itself as a narrative is built around that ambivalence. You, in a sense, you fought against it. Uh, you've rebelled in a way against your heritage. Of course, you left... Uh, the Soviet Union pretty early. You rebelled against that, but e even the narrative in the West when you came to the America uh, when you came to America it hasn't been a straight line. Um, no. Why are you so ambivalent about this inheritance of your legacy culturally and creativity? Yes, I'll tell you why. Because uh, when you grow up under the shadow, and my father died when I was only three years old. So, you know, David Oyster had a son who was uh, Igor Oyster, who was also a concert violinist. So he heard him all of his childhood, and he also heard him on days off when David Oyster was not in the best shape. And he heard some wrong notes or intonation he might have not practiced enough. I never had that chance. For me, my father was absolutely the ideal that you can never reach. And that is hard to grow up with. My mother gave me a fantastic gift without knowing that she did because I grew up basically under her piano. She never taught me anything directly because I had wonderful violin teachers and so forth and I went to a great school. But uh, she turned out to be, which I appreciated only later on, uh, one of the most perfect musicians I've ever met. Uh, she was never late or even one iota unprepared for any rehearsals or concert. She's a totally consummate professional of the highest order. I just thought that every family was like this. And to be a musician, that you need to be like this. So that was sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I learned that by osmosis. I, I learned that just by breathing the same air with her. In the same what did, uh, I know you unfortunately never really got to know your father. No. But how did your mother bring you up in terms of making sense of talent? And in the world that you lived in, which I assume was pretty highbrow, pretty esoteric, yeah. you were socially and culturally surrounded by the kids of other brilliant musicians. Um, 
what was the, the the sense, if you like, of entitlement? How did people think about their place? Obviously, it was complicated by the nature of Soviet society and the injustices yeah. around that. Yeah. Uh, you know, she never was any, uh, any, she never had to do anything with, uh, because it was hard enough for her to be both female and Jewish. Right. And a widow, you know, she lost her husband before she turned 30 years old. She's, from, uh, she's originally people... from Baku, your mother, isn't she? Yeah, she's originally from Baku, but they both, and my father's from Kiev. And I, and I would have been born in Moscow, except she went to Baku to give birth mm. to me. Otherwise, I would have been, they already lived in Moscow. So I'm basically a Moscovite, though Bakunians like to claim me as, as their native son. But I really, at five weeks, I was already moved uh, to Moscow. I, she just went there because my grandfather was a, a wonderful surgeon, and so she had the best care there. Uh, I'll tell you, I, where I'm different from my parents is this. They were completely absorbed from what I also know about my father. He was born to play the violin and he, he had an incredible uh, genius for this. And people who ever heard him or now that they hear his recordings, they're absolutely, mm, uh, they, they just can't believe how, how gifted he was for that instrument. My mother is the same for the piano and she never ventured beyond that. I always like to know what everything is made of. I always like to, you know, apparently I was even born with my face up. And that's why it took so many hours for her to give birth, because I wanted to see the world. I was sort of always interested to to know and to think outside of the box. So for me... So it's that, so it's that curiosity, Dimitri, which has led right. you not only to become... Uh, uh, one of the world's leading violinists, but also conductor and arranger. I'm curious on the conducting front. Um, you said, uh, I'm quoting you here in a recent TED talk, you said, uh, when it comes to the orchestra, there's no difference in age, sex, race, religion, politics. Dimitri, are you falling into this American trap of fetishizing democracy and idealizing the, the orchestra as the vehicle for this? No, but you know, uh, it's true that uh, very few art forms could do the quality that, you know, a bunch of people with completely different backgrounds, providing they're all uh, great professionals, but they come together. Some of them do not get along in real life at all. And regardless what you just showed, regardless of the age, sex, religion, uh, color of skin, background, uh, political uh, beliefs, for those two hours, or an hour, or even 10 minutes, they have a chance to be transported and to become greater than what they are individually. And that's a miracle of orchestra, that's a miracle of music. I don't think there is any art form where, uh, you know, in, in real life, you can actually do it. Now I'm trying to do the same well, thing. Well, perhaps uh, you and I are both uh, big football soccer fans. Yeah, 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 by, uh, Jose Mourinho or some other manager. Yeah. But, uh, uh, Dimitri, you, uh, I think you're the founder of the the uh, the new European uh, uh, yeah. Uh, 
a string, a string, uh, strings, uh, which uh, you, you're doing a lot of live stuff now online. It's deeply democratic structurally, and I think culturally, and of course dramatically contrasts with the more traditional 20th century con conductor culture of, of a Toscanini or a Carian. Sure. Are you? Uh, critical of that old model of a Toscanini, a, Car a, a Carayan, are those days past now where men could bully the orchestra into performing great music? I think so. Uh, those days are past, uh, which I would not undermine the importance of those, what I call the pharaohs of the past. They did build fantastic... Uh, Who's your favorite? Is it... Uh, 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 well, the, 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 in terms of great historic conductors, yeah, I, I mean, I, I heard live, for instance, Leonard Bernstein. He was certainly, and I, I met Karian. I heard Karian also was a great, great uh, uh, orchestra builder. But um, you know, they, they, those uh, relationship of the dictator and people who follow their every desire and every whim and sometimes very, you know, temper tantrums and everything. Toscanini certainly was uh, known for his huge he was temper notorious, Toscanini. Yeah, yeah. He even blinded one of his uh, musicians by, by accident, by, you know, sticking the baton to uh, in his eyes. At the same time, you know, he just couldn't control his temper. These days, you have to know, uh, uh, you know, you have to control everything you say, everything you do, and it's, it's just a different environment. Support for this podcast comes from W.W. Norton, the independent and employee-owned publisher of The Light Ages, the surprising story of medieval science. In The Light Ages, Cambridge science historian Seb Falk takes us on a tour of the scientific and technological achievements of the Middle Ages through the eyes of one 14th century monk. An enlightening history, The Light Ages by Seb Falk, argues that these times weren't so dark after all. Available wherever books are sold. In these COVID uh, days, uh, Dimitri, your, your, your orchestra is you, you're being conducted online. Is that possible? Possible. The thing is, when you say that it's total democracy, uh, it's it's true and it's not really true because, first of all, we pick. I pick the music. I arrange it for my orchestra. I play it. I make all the decisions of interpretation, and also I'm the one who pays uh, the uh, the guy who puts it together. So, so you're a, you're really a more genial Toscanini. You don't blind people. You don't. That's have right. I so you still believe in this hierarchy when it comes to music that the conductor needs to control, needs to be in charge. I just believe that in the arts, uh, you know, the decisions by consensus doesn't work because somebody has to make a decision how we're going. One one person wrote it, and one person is going to decide how we're going to play it. You know, it's just as simple as that. There is one director in the movie. There's one director in the theater. There is somebody, there is an editor in the paper. There's one writer, usually. 
sometimes that too, but most of the time it's there. You know, it's very difficult to completely democratize the arts. It doesn't quite, you know, and, and the divine inspiration, if there is such thing, and I believe there is, uh, you know, comes usually to one person at the time, and you'd better hold it and be prepared to, to produce something worthwhile, because many of us, you know, if you're not in good shape, if you're not really prepared, it comes and then it leaves just as, as quickly. Speaking of divine uh, intervention, uh, Dimitri, uh, your third hat, and I'm sure there are many others as well, in addition to being a violinist and a conductor, is as a, an arranger or perhaps a, a rearranger of other people's music. Many sure. people will be familiar with you for your wonderful Goldberg variations um, on Nonesuch, I think from, from the 80s. I've been listening to, to your latest Goldberg variations uh, with the Britain's Symphonia. Uh -huh. So you have become known as a rearranger of Bath's work. Is that like rewriting the Bible? <laughs> well, it's re reinterpreting the Bible. You know, you can, uh, if Bach was alive, I could probably approach him and say, what do you think if it worked for strings? And knowing his work, and also knowing his life, how he transcribed, for instance, Vivaldi's works. Uh, you know, concerto for four violins he made for four harpsichords. At those days, they thought nothing of uh, changing the instruments. It was very, very uh, common uh, practice. I think he was a very practical man. And if he knew uh, that there was an army of string players who are dying to play possibly the greatest work he's ever written, the Goldberg Variations, uh, I don't think he would have said no. He might have made maybe some of uh, decisions of uh, instrumentation differently than I did, but he wasn't around. So uh, that's why they play, you know, uh, and, and on his mass back, I, I probably bought myself a ticket to immortality. Not what because is it about the Goldbergs that, that brings out this deep musical spirituality? Many people would also, of course, be very familiar with the Goldberg Glenn. through Glenn Gold, um, who is the sort of the ultimate musical, or seen at least as the ultimate musical genius, the yeah. if you like the 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 Steve Jobs of the music world. Um, right. You've listened to most of the music in the world. Why did you? Why have you dedicated so much of your creative work to to Bach Goldberg variations? Well, it was just the first. I've never done anything like that, and this this piece, and because of the Gould's interpretation, I had an idea because I just started writing it out because I've been listening and listening to it, and uh, then I realized that for the most part it was written for a three-part counterpoint. So, being a string player, I thought, well, violin, viola, and cello would work really well. And that was my first transcription. But I was so really so you, you you were led to revise uh, Bach through Gold himself, of course, who has a, a very mystical way of, of, of playing Bach and a, and a, and a mystical uh, brand. Yeah, and the way it's composed, live the entire from the theme going through thirty variations, which are incredibly uh, well also. He was a, you know, he was a great follower of, um, you know, of, of mathematics, and he was a Pythagorean. So it's incredibly well 
constructed. I mean, you have a theme and 15 variations, which means half of it, 10 variations, and then five, a perfect pyramid. It's incredibly well-crafted work, and it works just like magic. And by the time you come back to the theme, at the end of the variation, you, you do have a feeling that you've just lived a complete life from the beginning to the end, and then you transport it somewhere else. And the, I don't think there are any other pieces even by Bach, except maybe Chacon, which is a, a work for solo violin, which supposedly, it's a legend, he wrote uh, because he didn't have an organ to play at the at the funeral of his first wife, Barbara. And you, uh, you know, uh, you, know you, you, you call yourself an arranger rather than a rearranger. When you were arranging uh, yeah. the Goldberg variations, did you feel a particular responsibility not to overstep any boundaries and not to imprint your own signature too distinctively onto onto Bach's work? Yes, of course. Yeah, the main thing I also knew uh, about Bach that as long as you keep polyphony exactly uh, the relationship between the voices, in other words, uh, which is so precise. So you don't mix that. But instead, I gave them more of a personality. If you have one keyboard, it's harder to hear, unless you're Glenn Gould, it's harder to hear each voice continuously. When you have three voices, three people, three musicians on stage, you can actually follow, even visually, you can follow the polyphony, which becomes even more uh more of an interesting uh experience in the hall but of course i spent the whole time you know two months uh in the company of bach and glenn gould because that was the recording i was listening that was the most uh exalted company i've ever kept for two months and i will never forget that's probably was my happiest uh musical time and i was doing it late at night because because in the meantime, I was touring and playing other music and concertizing and so forth. But I couldn't wait till I was alone, uh, you know, in my room, one-on-one uh, -on -one with Bach and Glenn Gould. That, that is something I will never forget. And that started my whole sort of other uh, life as, a, as an arranger. Now I'm commissioned uh, transcriptions because I have a bit of a reputation. Dimitri, um, as I said earlier, um... And it's pretty obvious from still from your accent. You grew up in Russia. Your mother, both parents were distinguished Russian musicians. I would argue, as just as an enthusiast, that the greatest music in the 20th century came out of Russia, particularly from Shostakovich. Um, what uh, uh, I, I'm referring for, for those listening on the podcast, there's a, a vision of Julian Barnes, The Noise of Time, his novel about Shostakovich. Correct. What was it about the Russia of the 20th century that I, I uh, generated the, the genius of Shostakovich? Was it the, the fear, the unique politics of the age? No, well, first of all, you should not forget that uh, Shostakovich did not just appear in the middle of nowhere. There was Tchaikovsky, there was uh, Rimsky-Korsakov and the Mighty Five, and who was actually the teacher of Shostakovich. Um, uh, and Prokofiev as well. Uh, so, uh, you know, they they were, it, there was several, they, they, they came as a, as a group of great tradition. One of the oldest conservatories in the world was St. Petersburg Conservatory where he went, and then he taught also in Moscow Conservatory. So between Moscow and St. Petersburg, you had 
two great centers of uh, fantastic education. And uh, somebody like uh, Safonov, who was a teacher of Rachmaninov, Skriabin, Ziloti, and many others, uh, he adopted, uh, apart from the formal, uh, sort of the Renaissance model, where you had to stay with a great teacher in order to become a personality yourself. It's like Leonardo did not just grow from a little place uh, of Da Vinci, Vinci in, in, in Tuscany. He also studied and mixed colors and, and, and uh, wiped the floor and, and did the dishes for Verrocchio, as well as Botticelli and Perugino. So there, there was also a, a school. And besides Shostakovich, there was Prokofiev, and later was also Khachaturian and Kabalevsky. He, he was not alone. He was a giant, no question. And so was uh, Prokofiev. So in, a was sense, uh, in a sense, the community was like the orchestra. It was it was a group yeah. effort. There may not, there, but there wasn't a, a conductor really in in twentieth century Russia of the, the musical community. Is that fair? Well, conductor was uh, soon appeared, and that was Stalin, of course, who gave. You see, Stalin, Stalin owned all. Here of we have a picture of Stalin, and and all this comes to mind. I just saw uh, the death of Stalin, which was a marvelous film. Uh, oh, yeah, that was a wonderful, wonderful film. About. Um, yeah, Stalin realized. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dimitri, yeah, go ahead. No, sorry, finish your thought on Stalin. Yeah, Stalin realized early on that he could conquer the West, and not with his tanks necessarily, and not even with uh, any other uh, achievements in the science, sport, but he could conquer the West with his geniuses, uh, like Shostakovich, like Prokofiev, uh, like all the great, you know, Bolshoi Ballet, and Berioska Ensemble, and he did. He conquered, and even the ones who jumped the ship and, and you know, or did not return to, to Russia or became uh, defectors, like my friend uh, Barishnikov in New York, and everything, you still uh, think of them, of Nuri, of Barishnikov, and so many, Brodsky, you always think of them as Russian artists. So if you go through the whole, you know, array, of those incredible, then you think of Russia, if such phenomenal culture of the 20th century, it has to be a superpower. Yeah, so here's a that, picture again of your mother. And very briefly, Dimitri, do you consider yourself a Russian artist? Yes no, or no? <laughs> yes and no, because I've lived now two-thirds of my life in the West. I'm married to an American who is a Russian in third generation. But my daughter is really English because she was born and bred. We're very cosmopolitan. We're very, uh, but of course I do carry Russian culture with me. To say that I have the Russian mentality, no, it's already different. And even the language, when I go back there and I go back quite frequently for concerts because it's still a very vibrant uh, cultural life there, uh, I speak uh, differently than they do. Uh, so, you know, I'm more or less, uh, you know, I'm Russian, American, English, and European, you know, you could, you could. Uh, yeah, it's not a great time, though, Dimitri, to be a cosmopolitan. You're stuck in your home in West Hampstead in London. I'm here in Berkeley. Um, finally, everyone should listen to all your music, but particularly, I think, your, your Goldberg variations, which you can still get on Nonsuch or, or, or the new recording with the Britain Symphonia. 
but in these strange times, uh, Dimitri, what else should people be listening to as we as we wait for the election uh, in America, as we wait to fix COVID? What is appropriate music for uh, the November and December of 2020? Yes. Well, if you you know, it's recently since now I've had the time I've I've got now my own YouTube channel and I put there as well as some other social media, but YouTube channel, you could just go and find my uh, distant videos, which I do with my chamber orchestra. And that is something which I've learned to do only last six or seven months, because uh, I do special arrangements for that orchestra, anywhere between Moscow and Seattle, uh, throughout the States, in Europe, and it's it's they're all members of my new European strings orchestra. And, and that's Jam. a wonderful opportunity to to, to finish this by a, a short clip, an online clip, a recent one of your of your wonderful orchestra. So here we go. listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.